Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Today I'm going to unpack abortion from the perspective of the woman, a feminist issue that everyone really can get behind. I think there are a lot of fake feminists out there because a true feminist stands with and for women. And so we're going to talk about abortion from the perspective of the woman. And I actually have some news for you on the abortion front as we see a war being waged from state to state over legal abortion. We see for just a moment a little bit of a focus on Indiana. Now, An abortion clinic is closing in Indiana called Whole Woman's Health Alliance in South Bend, Indiana. This is right there next to Notre Dame. This abortion clinic is of particular interest to me because I follow their story for years. There's something very shocking about this abortion clinic. Here's the deal. It's noted in the recent information that this abortion clinic has been open and serving, quote, serving women for seven years. In that time, even the president of the clinic, which now is closing, has said that her staff has seen over 1,100 women solely for medication abortion. That doesn't include other types of abortion. So we're talking about RU-486 chemical abortion, which is in the news right now. But pause for a moment. If she says for seven years they have been seeing women for these types of abortions, that's alarming. Because a number of years ago, back in 2019, I covered Whole Woman's Health Alliance here on Trending. And I shared with you about the fact that they were opening up in the summer of 2019 without a medical license. That's significant because not only were they opening up without a medical license, they were operating. What I mean specifically was specifically to serve women for abortions. They have been operating since 20, what would it be, 2016? let's see, go back four years, 2016, essentially, without a medical license there at Whole Woman's Health. Now, I'm not sure if they ever did actually obtain the license, but back in 2015, they applied for a medical license, were denied, were denied. For two years, they battled the denial over the medical license. Late into 2018 and early into 2019, a judge said, well, you know, why don't you just open without it? Kind of saying like, hey, we'll turn the other way on this issue because Indiana did actually have expectations of a abortion facility that kills children and damages women's bodies that they should operate according to some basic medical standards. But for over two years, this abortion clinic that is now closing, Whole Women's Health Alliance in South Bend, Indiana, couldn't even meet those basic requirements to have their medical license. So they decided on their own with the support of a pro-abortion judge to just open anyway for business. But what's interesting, as I mentioned just a moment ago, in the press release from some of the staff members about this abortion clinic closing because of pro 
life laws and regulations in the state of Indiana, what's happening is, in fact, this. What we see in that statement is that they've been performing abortions far and long before ever deciding to continue to operate without a medical license. And it's heartbreaking because I want to be really clear about something. It says that over 1,100 women received so-called care from this facility for medical abortions, RU46 chemical abortions. What does that mean? Let's be clear. That means over 1,100 babies were murdered at the hands of physicians, medical workers, front desk individuals who are all supporting and helping to liaison a woman's abortion there in South Bend, Indiana. Not to mention if there are twins, that would be far more than 1,100 babies. It would be women who are suffering the consequences physically, emotionally, psychologically of having had an abortion and carrying that, even scars, psychologically and even often physically for the rest of their lives. That's very significant. And that's why I wanted to focus for just a moment on this abortion clinic making the news that's closing in Indiana. Because one, it was never providing care for women because it was never meeting basic medical standards. They opened up without a medical license and they have been doing damaging health care, not just because it's pro-abortion health care, but also because it won't meet basic medical standards there in the state of Indiana. This is one thing. It's politics on the backs of women and killing babies. That's what legal abortion is. When you operate without a medical license, when you don't necessarily require physician oversight, which is what we see in states including California, Michigan, Vermont, Illinois, Colorado, Oregon, New Mexico, and others as well, where they don't even require that a medical license or a physician oversee an abortion, that they don't even require in many places that you even see in person a physician before taking RU-486 chemical abortion, one of the most common types of abortion today. These same states I just listed also allow for abortion up to birth. Now, praise God, there are certain cities in the state of New Mexico where pro-life advocates are fighting to pass ordinances in their local cities and areas over the recent months from the last year to make it so that abortion up to birth is not the status quo in their state, therefore protecting women. I've cited the study before. It was actually a pro-abortion study over the course of 10 years, and the goal was to show how badly women were hurting when they were turned away from giving, being given access to abortion, especially in the middle of the country where more pro-life laws were passed. And what the study showed, the turn, turnaway study, was that, in fact, the further away from the attempted abortion a woman got, that is, the further away from going to the abortion clinic and finding out either she was too far along or there wasn't an abortion clinic in her area when she didn't have the abortion, the further from that attempt of an abortion, the happier she was with the choice of having the baby. And then the happiness, the appreciation, the gladness with having had the baby only improved the further away from the attempted abortion, the further into the baby's life after being born. Now, the study tried to skew everything and say, oh, yeah, but women still struggle with mental health crises when they have children who are, quote, unwanted. Well, children or women who have children who are wanted, women who have children who are, quote, unplanned or unwanted, whatever you want to say, uh, they all universally struggle with mental health issues and postpartum depression. That is a stamp of our culture. Could it be more prevalent among women who did not expect or plan or intend to have children? Sure. But we also know many women who rise to the occasion 
with the support of community and family, are able to thrive given time in motherhood. That's part of the reason why we talk so much about motherhood. You know, it's interesting when I had children, my goal with the show here on Trending was I hope to never become the mommy show here on Trending. But here's what's important. We have to talk about pro-woman, pro-mother content, because what is important is that we are building up women in our culture. Women are floundering today with regard to motherhood. They're being told your worth matters everywhere except for with your child. Either don't have children, delay having children, or when you do, you are not that important. Children are resilient. You can send them off and that's okay. Again, a whole nother hot topic that's controversial, but it's important that we are bonding women with children children with their mothers. That's why we talked yesterday with psychoanalyst Erica Komazar and how important her work is in diving into the real research that is pro-life and goes against the narrative that children don't need their moms. It's not the case. And as she indicates, the psychotherapy, the neuroscience is there to support it. It's fascinating. I hope you'll listen to yesterday's episode where we dive into the science of motherhood and the importance of the presence of a mother with her child. So I want to talk a little bit more later on during the show about how important it is that we understand abortion from the perspective of the woman and see this as a feminist issue because we need to see two sides of the coin with the pro-life argument, the pro-life debate. On one side, we must always emphasize that at the end of the day, this is about the fact that a baby is being murdered. That's the truth of the matter. We need to humanize and personalize that baby, creating an emotional connection and bond with the reality of these children individually, one after another, who are being killed. For some people, abortion suddenly becomes personal when they find out a loved one is pregnant who might have an abortion. Or when they ponder the fact that I could never have imagined not having my child. And suddenly people become more pro-life as they have their own children. But the other side of the coin is the fact that at the heart of the abortion crisis in our culture is that a woman is being harmed so significantly under the guise of a political word called abortion. Because it is political. It's population control. It is eugenics. It is also a part of what people believe ideologically about the world and the pursuit of happiness, all wrapped up in what we allow politically, legally in this culture, in this world. And as we know what we believe to be or what we know to be as legal, we believe to be as moral. And this is part of the challenge of a post-Roe versus Wade world, where Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the decision lies in the hands of the individual states. We saw Vermont, Michigan, and California vote last year, to my dismay, to actually people individually on propositions, ballot measures across the nation from coast to coast, Vermont to Michigan to California, voted for legalized abortion through all nine months of woman's pregnancy enshrined in the state constitution with no medical oversight, not the necessity for anything from medical licenses, from physician oversight. That is what occurred. Why did that occur? Why did people vote for that? Because one, they didn't actually understand what that law was and how barbaric it is. I don't think anyone actually wanted that law unless they truly, truly worship what abortion is. And I think there are very few people who actually do want that level of 
legally accessible abortion. So they didn't understand. But at the same time, we do have a culture who has lived for basically 50 years with legalized abortion and therefore has believed that what has been legal all these years is moral. And then it is moral for them to support and promote that women have access to abortion. And that is why from Vermont to Michigan to California, unfettered access to abortion, even unfettered financial support for abortion was passed into the state constitution. And let me be clear for just a moment, in those states, especially my state of California, we are seeing that in California, they are actually prioritizing funds for abortion over funds for basic and very important programs for people who need help. Everything from, you could argue, people in need who are homeless to people in need who are experiencing a crisis in their family with regard to family support to education system that the priority in our state government in California and other states as well is abortion that funds are being allocated first to abortion that's how barbaric and wrong this is but again because it has been legal for so long even people who aren't necessarily quote pro-abortion people who stand in the middle ground they believe the moral and right thing to do was to support legalized abortion so we're going to talk about it from the perspective of a woman and seeing this as a feminist issue because taking this as a feminist argument really helps to change heart minds and souls and that's why we have to look at abortion from an international perspective as well We'll come back to that in just a bit here on Trending. We're also going to talk in just a few minutes here about worshiping God and how important worshiping God is as well. Understanding from the perspective of the first and third commandments, how fundamental those are in our faith, that we often focus a lot on things such as thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. But what are the first commandments? Why are they first? Because they are first in order of importance. I'll be right back here on Trending with Timory. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back. If you have a question, again, that number is 888-914-9149. Especially if you have a question about abortion, we're going to be unpacking abortion from the perspective of the woman and really addressing this as a feminist issue to bring around our very pro-feminist friends and family members, colleagues, co-workers, when you have the opportunity to talk about it, because this is a feminist issue. It's actually a very feminist issue that even our radical feminists would actually support if they understood some of the nitty-gritty of how bleak abortion is for women. So I'll talk about that in just a few minutes here. But what I wanted to talk about today as well is looking at the five precepts of the Catholic Church. We talked a little bit about them yesterday, and I said I teased out a little bit more, and here's why this is so important. So the five precepts of the Catholic church are to one, attend mass on Sunday and holy days of obligation, two, to confess your sins at least once a year, three, that you receive Eucharist at least once a year, specifically during the Easter season, you observe days of fasting, abstinence, and that are prescribed by the church. And number five, that you help provide for the needs of the church. I'll unpack that a little bit further in just a few moments here. But I want to look at this, it contextualizes. Why are these precepts of the Catholic Church? Why are these requirements for us as Catholics? Well, all of them center around worship and what orients us toward worship and union with God. Without proper worship, we do not 
properly know, love, and serve God. That's why our Catholic faith is the one true faith handed down apostolically because it's been preserved century after century. The liturgy is the heart of Catholicism. The Eucharist is the source and summit of our Catholic faith because without Jesus Christ and the worship of him, we have nothing. Jesus Christ so generously, so graciously pours himself out to us in the literal union with him. We didn't have that prior to the coming of Christ. But at the same time, what's fascinating, the liturgy was not as fundamental prior to the coming of Christ because it did not have Jesus Christ. It did not have the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, there were tons of liturgical sacrifices and moments on the calendar throughout the whole year for the Israelite people. When they'd celebrate, they'd travel, they'd make pilgrimages to the temple. But it wasn't as significant as the liturgy where Jesus Christ, we consume body, blood, soul, and divinity. So why is this all significant? Because I want to contextualize these five precepts of the Catholic Church within the perspective of worshiping God and how that is our primary responsibility as Catholics. How do you know that? Well, what's the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other strange gods before me. What's after that? Keep holy the Lord's name. What's after that? Keep holy the Lord's day. So let's focus on those three. Here's the deal. We tend to, when we do an examination of conscience, myself included, tend to put focus on all of those other moment-to-moment interpersonal experiences with others. And we focus on that as the primacy of our sins and our things that we need to work on. And we do. It's fundamental. But I think that part of the problem with our examination of conscience and our focus on sin is askew because it's not focused on God first and man second. We put me first, neighbor second, and then maybe we think about those actual violations directly, directly against God with regard to how we worship him and honor him. Think about one of the most common phrases today that people say. That phrase, OMG, or people literally take the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in vain. That's a direct violation against the second commandment. But let's come to the first commandment. You shall worship one God. You shall have no strange gods before me. What are our strange gods? Oh, we don't worship pagan idols in this culture, do we? How about this idea that you can be both Catholic and be also spiritual and practice and dabble in things such as Hinduism and Buddhism? have a Buddha around, that's actually a sign for worship for some other religions. It's not something we're supposed to joke about and have in our homes. But it's not just actual outright obvious things such as that, which should be more obvious to us than they are, but it's also the fact that our gods in the modern day materialistic and hedonistic culture, hedonism means pleasure, right? Our modern day gods today are our own pleasure, our own delight, wrongful delight, but also our own material desires as well. So our our idols, our gods today, aren't necessarily idols, barbaric idols that require child sacrifice or human sacrifice. 
There aren't creepy fertility gods that we're necessarily worshiping and doing very odd things. No, that's not what we're doing today. What we are doing is we're worshiping money. We're idolizing sexuality. We are idolizing career and putting ourselves above all other responsibilities. We're idolizing human achievement. We're idolizing rest and leisure to the point of doing nothing and being demotivated. Those are the gods getting in the way of worshiping the one true God. And so I bring and contextualize the five precepts of the Catholic Church within that perspective of understanding what's the first commandment. You shall worship one God. Now, I have a friend who a couple of years ago shared with me that she went to confession. And she starts by going through number and kind, how we're supposed to go to confession. And she starts with me you know, saying that, okay, you know, I, I've sinned against the first commandment. And Father stopped her for a moment and said, well, if you've sinned against the first commandment, in reality, you've broken the worst of the commandments and all of the commandments. And it startled her. When she heard this visceral response, because she realized I had never really confessed the fact that I failed to uh, really confess that I have actually many times and repeatedly failed to honor God in the first commandment of worshiping him. You shall worship one God. You shall not have other strange gods before you. And she realized she was startled by the fact that because I've gotten this wrong for all this time, it's gotten in the way of doing everything else right. And if only this was the perspective I had primarily that worship was rightly ordered and that I was overcoming those other things I try to worship, then everything else would fall into line. And so I want to encourage you to take some time to ponder the first three commandments. I am the Lord your God. You have not, shall have no strange gods before me. You shall worship one God. Number two, keep holy the Lord's name. And number three, do you know it? Keep holy the Lord's day. So God first, honor his name, and keep holy the day set apart for God. All of that is oriented toward worship, worshiping God above all else. And this is why we have those five precepts of the Catholic Church, because they're all ordered toward worship. And then finally, the very last precepts orders us out to the needs of the full religious community. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, Jews, knew the primary commandment for them, this responsibility, Deuteronomy 6, 5, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And that was the perspective of which they were meant to teach and pass on their faith, to pass on the Shema. I have this bracelet, and on the inside of the bracelet, it's inscribed, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. My parents, my mom, taught that to us repeatedly as children. Worship comes first. We love him, and out of that love, we worship him. This is why we are meant to get down on our knees the beginning and end of each day. This is why we're meant to praise him throughout the day. This is so significant for us. This is why I loved when I was in formation before I got married with the community of St. John. I went on a whole summer program with the religious community of St. John, and we spent a full month. We would pray four to five hours a day, and the whole idea of the program for young adults was this, that the religious priests and sisters have the gift of pausing seven times a day in prayer, having hours of adoration, going to Mass every day. Yet we who are out in the world engaging with a front-on battle with the culture 
are not being formed in proper prayer and worship. And because we don't have proper prayer and worship, we are struggling to meet those other commandments, those other sins and bad habits that are pulling us down and damaging our relationships with others, damaging the city, state, and country we live in because we aren't putting worship first. Now, how do we know that worship was primordial in the Old Testament? Because God set aside a whole day to worship and rest, to be resting, not just doing whatever we want, but that day of rest was first and foremost for worship, and that through our leisure, it was an act of entrusting ourselves to God, that I can complete all my other responsibilities in six other days. And on this day, out of love and trust and faith and justice, I will remain with you. I will recover with you. I will recover in you. That's why that day of rest is so significant. So I'm trying very hard. My husband and I try very hard not to use Sunday as a day for meal prep, for grocery store shopping. I try very hard even not to shop online on Sundays. I try to save it, you know, for another day. Even if it's something simple I might want to pick up, I try not to go to the grocery store. And grant, there are days where I outright fail and I'm not able to succeed at this. But for the most part, I really try to keep that off my docket. Even, you know, I feel, you know, there's this whole idea too. I've heard people talk about, you know, should we be employing people uh, to make us food, going out to eat on Sundays? I will admit, I have not quite given that up where we on occasion go out to eat on Sundays. Some people say, oh, well, they're choosing to work anyway. They may be choosing to work, but it's still a violation of the of the third commandment, keeping holy the Lord's day. In the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the idea was is that you prepared your food the day before so that you don't even cook on the Sabbath day. And so when we talk about keeping holy the Lord's day, there are a lot of, I think, tiny things that we could bicker about whether or not that's something we're meant to do on a Sunday. But in reality, the big picture is this. Am I setting aside everything for God or am I filling the Lord's day Sunday with all those other things I didn't get done throughout the week? I think that's at the heart of the question. And can I plan and entrust myself to God that I can get it done at a different time? He duplicates time. I know this is a fact. I remember I was in a rigorous undergraduate program and then went right into a graduate program. I was actually taking master level courses in biblical, exegetical biblical theology as an undergraduate student. I was in over my head. We were being tested at the same level as master students. We had the same expectations. And I remember you know, I was probably supposed to read anywhere between three and five books a week. I, I don't know how I possibly had time to do anything, yet alone sleep. But I was really pondering the third commandment that we are to keep holy the Lord's day and not spend that as the day to catch up on everything and just continue to do the same thing we do all the other six days of the week. And something incredible happened. I decided that I was no longer going to do my homework on Sundays. And I was even in a lot of my programs were theology classes. Other than if I read anything, it was sacred scripture and I was going to make it prayerful reading, really trying to be prayerful and not just academic studying this to get a, get a task done. And God duplicated my time. 
It was incredible. I started sleeping better. My whole orientation throughout the week, I was more disciplined. I think in some ways, it's both God blessing the fact that we are honoring him in that time. He really does duplicate time. But also, when we have more to do, we tend to be more organized with our time as well, right? So it's a both human practical side, but predominantly understanding that when we rest, we are better equipped to do the mission that God has in store for us. So when you look at the five precepts of the Catholic Church, and I spoke about them yesterday, number one, attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. It should be our joy and delight to meet this obligation. It used to be a phrase many years ago where someone might ask you to do something and your response would be, I'm much obliged, like I'm gladly obligated to you, not in a negative obligatory sense, but is a positive sense of, I'm glad to serve you and to have this obligation to you. So when we think about our Sunday obligation of going to Mass and our obligation to go on holy days of obligation to Mass, be much obliged with joy. Go set aside right in your calendar these days of holy days of obligation and know when they come. Study why it's significant that God is calling us to worship him in the church on those days. He's calling us to be pilgrims and to make that pilgrimage to the church even when it's difficult. Number two, we're to confess our sins at least once a year. Again, this is an act of worship because we are receiving the grace from God, begging his forgiveness. In the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the sacramental graces of confession. Number three, we're meant to receive the Eucharist, the source and summit of our Catholic faith, at least once a year, and that is during the Easter season. Why? Because we are meant to be physically united with God. And this is the church saying, hey, if you fall off track, you stop going to communion. If you stop going to confession, you need to get get your soul right with God and then physically unite yourself to him again. Bare minimum. Number four, we're to observe days of fasting and abstinence prescribed by the church. This isn't just to make us discipline and pummel our bodies for the sake of being able to do it. No, it's so that we fast and unite ourselves in our suffering to Christ, knowing that we are so frail, creatures not creators, dependent upon God, and that he is the life who sustains us. And number five, and that's an act of worship. That is an act of worship to fast and abstain from things and to unite that suffering, that incapacity, the inability to him prayerfully. And number five, help provide for the needs of the church. But that's number five. It's not the first. No, because we're rightly ordering and rightly worshiping God, that worship will lead to how we worship God with our money, with our time, and with our talents. So we help provide for the needs of the church with our almsgiving, with our time, talents, and treasures, that that too, the work we do is an act of worship, but we only get that right when we get worship right. And so that brings us back yet again to Jesus Christ and the words in the New Testament. I've talked about this on Monday as well. That in Mark chapter 12, when Jesus is being asked by the scribes and really kind of getting into the nitty gritty, well, what is the most the most important commandment? They're trying to trap him. And he turns back to the Shema that I mentioned, Deuteronomy 6, 5. He says, the first Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. What is Jesus saying here in Mark chapter 12? Get your priorities straight. And then he says, the second commandment is this. Then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. He summarizes all 10 of the commandments in these two simple commandments. Get your relationship right with God, then he will have your relationship right with your peers, with those side by side with you in the culture. And that's the perspective of the Garden of Eden. If you take yourself all the way back to our human anthropology in Genesis chapter 1, what do we see? Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. God walked in the garden with them. Upon the fall, when God is walking in the garden after the fall, Adam and Eve are hiding from him. They damaged their relationship with God. That vertical relationship with God, us to heaven, us to God was damaged. They no longer walked in the garden with him. They hid from him. And then when he gave them the opportunity to repent, he said, what's happened? Why are you hiding from me? Adam turns and looks at Eve and says, she did it. The woman made me do it. The woman you gave me made me do it. Rather than having that sense of reconciliation, that remorse, that sorrow. That's why confession is one of those five precepts of the Catholic Church. Get back in line with God and then everything else falls back into order. God is so merciful in giving us that sacrament of reconciliation. And so when we get that vertical relationship with God right, as it was at the beginning, at the dawn of creation, Adam and Eve walking the garden with with God, then we see the healing of our horizontal relationships. And I always am baffled by the fact that God, when he created us prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were butt naked. They, they, They were comfortable with that. They hid from God, though, after the fall. They hid from each other. They had a sense of shame because there was objectification one toward the other. There was embarrassment before God for Adam and Eve. So when we get our relationship wrong with God, look at what happens, how we view ourselves, how we view others. This is why the first commandments center around God. And if we were only to have that perspective on getting right with God, rather than getting right with those little bad habits that make us miserable throughout the day, those sins that hurt us and hurt our neighbor, those are fundamental and important. But if we get worship right first, everything else will fall into place. And so honor that Sunday day of obligation. Be much obliged joyfully to go and worship God. Confess your sins once a year. Receive the Eucharist at least once a year worthily. Observe the days of fasting. The church prescribes, even our bishops are still asking us to fast every Friday, to abstain from meat on Fridays. And then five, help provide for the needs of the church. That comes naturally through our time, talent, and treasures when we have the right perspective, the right relationship with God, because our priorities are right. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. Tomorrow, United States Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri will be joining me on Trending, and we're going to talk about his new book on manhood. It's called Manhood, and it talks about six virtues that men need for us to take back culture, six virtues men need. And he writes it from a biblical and philosophical worldview that is so spot on. I can't wait for you to join me with Senator Josh Hawley tomorrow here on Trending as we discuss. I'll be right back talking about the feminist perspective and arguments we need to make with regard to abortion to help bring our peers around because this is a feminist issue and they actually do agree with us when they know all the facts.
listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Trending. Okay, so I have taken the approach for a number of years now that when talking about abortion, we really need to talk about it from the perspective of the woman first, never diminishing the fact that there is a baby present and that we need to create that personalized relationship between mother and baby, baby and mom, humanizing the baby, personalizing the baby. And that's why the pro-life movement has talked about the fingers, the toes, the heartbeat. That baby is an individual whose life we must fight for. But we live in a culture where radical feminism is so rampant that many people, and I've heard people say this firsthand, they think that especially Catholics, that Catholics are anti-woman if you're anti-feminist or that Catholic or that pro-life people are anti-woman because they view pro-life to be radically opposed to modern day, what I call radical feminism. But we actually agree with a lot. And that is very important that we understand that when we can have an argument about abortion from the perspective, through the eyes, through the lens of a feminist, You can change a heart and a mind because you get them on the feminist issue and then you personalize both the woman's experience and the baby's experience. Once they see how a woman is being exploited in abortion, they are suddenly a champion for life. And that is very significant for us to say and to be able to articulate. So I mentioned earlier that that abortion clinic in Indiana is closing. Praise God. Why was that significant? I've covered the story on that abortion clinic for years. They opened up without a medical license. For years, they were trying to get one. They couldn't. They opened up anyways, performing abortions without a medical license. Why is that significant? Because what we're seeing is that the pro-abortion movement does not meet basic medical requirements. Medical licensing, well-trained doctors. They don't even do pelvic and abdominal exams, which is something that even the United Nations, the Geneva World Health Organization, all the way back to 2012, expected that a pelvic exam and an abdominal exam will be done before an abortion. Why does that need to be done? Because a woman can literally die from an abortion if she has different types of symptoms and things going on. For example, including a sex sexually transmitted disease. If a woman has a sexually transmitted disease, has an abortion where instruments are being drawn up through her reproductive tract, through her reproductive system, that STD is being drawn all the way up into her body, causing additional scar tissue and spreading. Pelvic and abdominal exams before abortions can save women's lives and save damage to their bodies long term from happening. But the abortion movement doesn't even meet those basic standards. Facilities won't even meet basic compliance with medical and health standards that require them to be up to code, such as being able to fit a gurney through the halls in the event that something happens, a woman's hemorrhaging, something goes wrong with the abortion. They don't even have admitting privileges to local hospitals within, let's say, a 30 or 40 mile radius where they have a direct relationship that if something goes wrong, hey, I'm calling you, we have an emergency, we're transferring this woman. They don't have these emergent protocol set up. They don't have the space in their hallways to treat a woman properly to transfer her. And so why is this all significant? Because we see yet again that abortion is not a medically necessary procedure. And that's a very significant because if abortion was a medically necessary procedure, then 
the majority of women's physicians, OBGYNs, would be performing abortions. I'll talk about that more in just a moment here. I want to touch, though, first on attitudes about abortion, pro-abortion, pro-so-called feminist attitudes about abortion. Back in the 80s, you could say that part of the mindset was that women needed to have a right to privacy, that women were convinced to tune out the idea that the baby, there was a baby in the womb, that it was her decision, her choice about what she did with her body, and it was a private choice. In the 2000s, we heard loud cries of arguments about my body, my choice. Women believed that abortion was necessary, a necessary choice for equality. And there are a lot of other arguments that we could discuss, but in 2018, Dr. Leanna Wen, who was the president of Planned Parenthood for a year year or two, um, she ended up being let go because she disagreed with following on some radical gender issues, among many other things, on really this pro-feminist culture that says there are no differences between men and women. I don't understand how that's pro-woman. But Dr. Leanna Wen in 2018 really made the argument that abortion is health care. And she did a very good job of making that argument and really ushering into the 2020s the perspective that we would be prevalent with regard to abortion that was really prevalent at the legalization of Roe versus Wade, that women were dying from botched abortions, that women were getting abortions anyway, that maternal mortality rates are high and therefore we need abortion. It's not the case. But Dr. Leanna Wen, then the president, Planned Parenthood president did a very good job of helping focus in that argument, and it did a lot of damage. It led women, especially we saw, to focus on this idea of quality of life, that because abortion was necessary in basic health care, that allowed for us to ensure the quality of life we wanted, that if we couldn't give the children what we wanted, that we could kill them. If we couldn't have the life we wanted, we could also kill our babies. And that really continued to take that focus into the 2020s of, quote, access to abortion at all costs. This idea of absolute autonomy, access, unfettered access through all nine months of a woman's pregnancy, even shirking anything from medical licensing to physician oversight. Why is this all significant? Because today you hear the most common arguments for abortion have to do with access, and you hear that it has to do with the health of the mother or situations, abusive situations such as rape. But do we recognize that really less than 1% of all abortions are actually occurring due to serious health risks to women and because of an incidence of rape or incest? I keep coming back, for example, to the testimony that Abby Johnson shared back in 2010 or 11 in her book Unplanned when she started to chronicle part of her story, how she would cancel counsel women into choosing abortion. And I remember there was one story in particular that always stood out to me. It was a story of a woman who had been raped and who chose to have an abortion. She actually came back to talk to Abby after having had the abortion. And the woman said this to Abby, I was the victim, that is, of the rape. She said, I completely understand that I carry no blame for the rape. But, and she began weeping to Abby and said, I keep having nightmares about the abortion. I feel so much guilt. I know I deliberately took the life of my child. That testimony reigns true in the lives of countless women who have experienced horrific abuse at the hands of abusers, 
who were then encouraged to have abortions. They went from being a victim to instead of going through a psychological healing process from something so traumatic and damaging and life-changing, they then, after having the abortion, actually psychologically start to associate themselves with their rapists because to them, they have now chosen to do something to an innocent human being being the baby, just as the rapist did something awful and horrific to them. And so they have a hard time moving forward in that healing journey. Does that mean that every woman who experiences sexual abuse and becomes pregnant needs to be the parent to her child and raise a child? No, not necessarily. But what I think is very important is that they are able to carry that baby to term, place that baby for adoption if they so choose, or parent the baby, that it be a choice for them. And so these are very important things that I think that we need to be able to respond to and see the perspective on of what is actually best for women. What is best for women's psychological healing after instances of rape and incest? What is best when it comes to the medical perspective for women? Let's take up that medical argument. There's no medical reason for any abortion, especially late-term abortion. The child can actually be delivered early after viability. 85% of OBGYNs do not perform abortions. That's nearly 9 in 10 pro-women doc- doctors do not perform abortions. Why? Because abortion isn't basic women's health care. It's not life-saving care. A baby produces, a abortion produces a dead baby, not a healthy woman. Abortion never leads to a woman being healthy as the product. That's not the goal. That's never been the product. Even when a woman's life is in jeopardy, You can always deliver the baby early. You never have to go in and directly kill the baby. And often, women who need life-saving care that could be detrimental and deadly to a child often will wait until viability to deliver a baby and, God willing, pray that that baby's life can be fought for outside of the womb. The perspective is that there are two patients. and You never vet mom against baby or baby against mom. Yeah, our culture is full of inconsistencies. You hear people say, my body, my choice. And I always think of the testimony of Carol Everett. She's the owner of two abortion clinics and the director of four. And she, back in the 1980s and many years ago, would help counsel women to abortion. She says every woman has the same two questions when they would come into the abortion clinic. The first question, is it a baby? And they would say no. The counselors would assure it's not a baby. It's a product of conception. She said, how many women would have an abortion if we told them the truth? So she said that primary question, that first question that women always have when they come in for an abortion, is it a baby? And they lie. They say no. It's a product of conception. If the culture in the world knows better. That's why when you hear arguments such as my body, my choice, it doesn't work after a woman has had an abortion and we see the mental crisis that women are suffering today. They may yell, my body, my choice, but the reality is I'm a mother whether I consented or not because there is sexual abuse, whether I desired pregnancy or not, at the end of the day, whether this was planned or unplanned, the moment I learn I am pregnant, I am a mother. And this is why the fallout from abortion has been so significant for women. Women hurt from abortions. There's a significant, significant research. Even CBS News and Secular News covers this from time to time, the significance of post abortion trauma, post-abortion syndrome, including guilt, eating disorder, repetitive, torturous nightmares, 
Sometimes the desire to get pregnant again to replace the baby with a rainbow baby. Sometimes the outright avoidance of children and getting pregnant. There's nearly a 40% increase likelihood in depression than the other women who choose to keep their babies. A 35% increase in anxiety. Get this, 115% increase in, in likelihood to have suicidal ideations and completion of suicide. Anniversary reminders fear of infertility down the road. Many women struggle to bond with future children because of the trauma of the abortion. There's a 220% increased likelihood to use and abuse a marijuana. Don't care what you think about it. Don't care if it's legal. It's still wrong. Fear of future children will die. And the, the impact on women, women is severe. I think of a friend of mine who had an abortion on her birthday. and Every year on her birthday, She's reminded of the wrong she has done. It's not a day of celebration. Women remember the day they had abortions. Women remember the day that they would have been due. Women remember the day they found out they were pregnant. These are anniversary reminders throughout the year of the horror and the trauma and the sorrow of what they've experienced. And it's pro-woman to actually tell the truth about the impact of abortion, as the majority of women are having abortions today. And we talk about maternal mortality rates Many people say we need abortion because women will die otherwise. Well, the states with the highest abortion rates are the United States and Russia, some of the highest abortion rates. Yet, those same states, those same countries have the highest, the highest maternal mortality rate. So obviously, legalized abortion, the practice and the regulation of abortion in those countries, the United States and Russia, have not led to women, fewer women dying. The United States and Russia have higher maternal mortality rates. The countries with lower maternal mortality rates include countries with historically have had restrictions on abortion. One of the countries with the lowest maternal mortality rate up until when they started to give legal access to abortion was Ireland. Poland also has restrictions on abortion, severe restrictions on abortion. Poland, some of the lowest maternal mortality rates. Malta, no abortion, some of the lowest maternal mortality rates. Same with Chile and El Salvador, these countries that predominantly do not have access or very limited access to abortion. Do you know what does help maternal mortality? Penicillin, training, and anesthesia. And that's the truth of the matter and what we should be talking about. We have, I think, this perspective that we miss when it comes to these are the facts with regard to abortion. Even the exposés by Lila Rose and her organization Live Action, which you can see online, countless videos of what happens in the abortion movement, botched abortions, unregulated health standards, the cooperation of Planned Parenthood and abortion facilities in sex ring cover-up, unreported rape and incest cases. I mean, there are countless court documents on these cases where they settled outside of court. They sell the remains of babies without the consent of their moms. There's so much that could be said. That's why we'll continue to talk about this from a pro-feminist perspective. We haven't even touched on the international perspective on abortion that helps us to understand how significant the impact of abortion is and how this is a feminist issue. And when feminists hear these things, the medical fallout, the fact that regulations aren't being met to give basic medical health care to women, then people see that the abortion issue is a feminist debate today that we need to be charging to be pro-woman because to be pro-life is to be pro-woman and women deserve better than abortion. 
This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Thursday, I'll be joined by United States Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. He wrote a book called Manhood, The Masculine Virtues Americans Need. That is American men. This is a blueprint for what it means to be a man. It's written from a biblical and philosophical perspective and goes deep on how to find that blueprint for being a man in today's culture. So join me Thursday at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.